Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 158th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative, technologically innovative ways, such as animated videos, uh, including our upcoming AI animated video, and of course, graphic novels. I mentioned that because today we are joined with uh, one of the foremost experts in technological trends, among other subjects, Mark Mills. Before I give him his full introduction, however, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, we are going to be taking your questions. So go ahead and use the comment section to start typing them in, and we will get to as many of them as we can. Our guest today, Mark Mills, is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. He's host of the Last Optimist podcast and author of several books, including Work in the Age of Robots, Digital Cathedrals, and most recently, The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. Mark, thank you for joining us. It's great to join you. Thanks for having me. And uh, great to have you joining us from uh, Maine. It looks very rustic there. So <laughs> let's start first with a bit of your origin story. Uh, you are a man of uh, many interests and varied experiences, um, staff consultant, uh, the White House office under Reagan, venture tech, becoming one of the leading experts on energy policy. How did you get, how did you get there? <laughs> it was an accident, <laughs> I guess. I, you know, I, I studied physics and I liked machines as well. I didn't do engineering. I couldn't get a job as a physicist because in the one I graduated, there were, weren't many. So I worked as an engineer in microprocessors and semiconductors in the early days. And I worked in a fab doing process, what's called process engineering. And that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me to put me in a, in a manufacturing plant, a fab. And that's a very popular subject now, of course, because of the CHIPS Act. But it was formative in the sense that it fused the two things that I, I'm fascinated by, or three, I guess, always fascinated by computing and machines, manufacturing, how we make things and supply them to society, but also the underlying physics of how these things work. And that really matters in these very difficult, complex machines, always has. So that was, that was lucky. Then I happened to work in the nuclear industry early on in Canada. And when I first emigrated to the United States, I came on the eve of the accident at Three Mile Island as a young man. And I ended mm -hmm. up spending a week of the accident at the accident. So I found myself introduced to public debate, which would be a kind way of putting it for those who've forgotten how emotional and vicious the debates were around nuclear energy at that time. And being exposed to the challenge of talking about difficult things, things that scared people, things that people were worried about. Uh, in the public space and uh, with media. So, and then it was uh, uh, evolutionary that I ended up in the science office under President Reagan because nuclear energy mattered. I'd studied nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation mattered. And um, the energy issues were huge because of the two oil price spikes of 73 and 79. So it, it just coalesced and I've always liked to write. I was writing as a, as a young student. I've always enjoyed writing. I read a lot, I like to write. Uh, promoting, I like to help people who are writers, and I like, and I am a writer. So that they came together, if you like, in the think tank world later, later in my career, and that's so here. So here I am, and and my book covers all of those territories I just described and deliberately, even though it's about the cloud and technology of computing communications. There's a lot about machines and robots and automobiles and space travel, nuclear energy, and materials in the book because that's the world that we live in is comprised of the intersection of all these things. And as you know, and as all the listeners and watchers, viewers know, it's also the intersection of our politics. And of course, by working in a White House, I really was finally introduced to the challenges of separating 
uh, fact from fiction. There's been fake news for a long time. <laughs> and, and of course, the emotionality of issues. And then, of course, the venality of, mon of people and money chasing, not, not the, the good chase of money for productivity's sake, but the, you know those who are less than honorable chasing money in, in the public policy domains. And that was an education of the first order when I was first in the swamp of Washington, DC. All right, well, I have a bunch of questions um, about energy policy, which you referenced, but I'm going to hold those for when we also start taking audience questions, because I think you mentioned the CHIPS Act, people would like to get your take on that. But first I'm going to uh, dive into your latest book, as mentioned, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. First, let's start with terminology. You write, quote, the cloud may seem like a cooked up PR term, but a new word was needed to describe something that is as different from the internet as the latter was different from telephony. So uh, what exactly is cloud computing and why does it represent such a quantum leap forward in technology? Well, all of us use cloud computing today. So we know what it is because we use it. But when you do uh, mapping with other map, with other map program, you do whatever you do with your smartphone or computer that constitutes advice that's ubiquitously available to you, advice on what you might want to buy, and even medical advice using the famous Dr. Google, but it's much more than that now because increasingly it's personalized uh, in many of the health services you can get. It, that is really different. It's, it's very different than the internet. It's very different than you got mail in the old AOL days when I could you know, go shopping and look at a website. This is different. We know it's different because it's not a computer doing a calculation. It's computing ubiquitously available as a utility that's essentially giving advice. It does other things. We communicate with it. We store things there, cat videos, you know, the cloud storage of all your vacation pictures. But it's much more than that, as we know, because you can use AI to sort your pictures now increasingly easily. That ubiquity uh, and low cost, I mean, you have access, you and you and I have access to computing power that is, without hyperbole, a millionfold more powerful than anybody had access to, including the federal government in 1980 or 84 in a famous year. And you have it, access to it for pennies, literally. I mean, you pay a few hundred bucks a month if you're spending a lot. Most people spend far less than that. They have access to this for pennies. That's an astonishing collapse in cost at one of the biggest physical infrastructures humanity's ever built to provide advice ideas and not just communication, to, to, to provide not information, but um, inference. You don't a computer that calculates one plus one equals two is different than a computer that's ubiquitously available that says, this might be the direction you should take. And the direction might not be about driving in manufacturing. The supply chain industries are extraordinarily complex. One can ask in some normal language what decisions you might make about changing what you're selling or doing or ordering because the compute system, the cloud, has access to information in real time globally about things specifically relevant to your manufacturing. This, this is, a, as I say, a distinction with a profound difference. So that's why it's important. It's scale is enormous. In dollar terms, the cloud, more money is being spent on the capital infrastructure to expand the cloud today still than being spent by all the world's electric utilities to expand electric utility infrastructure. It's the biggest infrastructure by all measures of dollars, route miles, reach, and it's still growing. So it is consequential. It's not all good. Not all consequential things are good. I mean, I, we, I, everyone has, I'm sure, in their head now, oh, social media, evil, bad. And look what Zucker, you know, did. And look at did. Look what, you know, uh, Bezos can do or Twitter can do to elections. This is in people's heads. It's, uh, it's obviously an issue. But the point I really am trying to make in the book, it's not that that's all good. It's mostly good, is that it's consequential. All right. Well, um, also, it has economic consequences, and your book predicts a roaring 2020s. <laughs> We're about a third 
of the way into this decade. And yeah. polls suggest that Americans aren't feeling too optimistic about their economic future. So yeah. what might they be missing? Well, they're not they're not missing a lot in, in the sense that pessimism, even though I'm the last optimist, <laughs> pessimism, pessimism is rooted in um, events, right? We, we, are, we live in some very distressed times. People become pessimistic uh, when, when they feel uh, enervated by what's going on in the world rather than energized by the political dynamic we have in our country. And this is true of both political parties, right? Now, both parties, I think, are significantly uh, dispirited by the dynamic that we're playing out. My point would be twofold. First, it's not new to have dispiriting things going on in politics. It is the nature of politics. And to not know that means you're not reading any history. So you don't have to pick up a history book. You can use Google, pick any period of history and dive you know, down one layer into the debates of the day. And they were pretty, pretty. Uh, there were vigorous debates of very serious things, many more serious than we face today, many more consequential than we actually face today. So. What happens is, I think, is that people are reacting to our current conditions of probably a looming recession, uh, even though the stock market seems happy. Uh, they're unhappy about the political dynamic in our country. They're worried. I'm worried because I write in the introduction of my book, it's possible to Sovietize an economy because it's happened, not just by the Soviet Union in the 20th century, but in previous centuries. Governments can destroy economies. They do it regularly over history. So it can happen. So one should be worried about that. But one can also be realistically optimistic about the prospects, both politically for fixing the problem, because that's the human factor, but also what we're fighting for to get the system operating properly. By that, I don't mean perfectly, but properly. What we're fighting for is an opportunity for economic growth now. This is what I map out in my book an opportunity for economic growth greater than the opportunity for economic growth that was in play in the 1920s, which was the largest and greatest expansion of wealth in human history. The, the century, the balance of the century, 1920 to 2000, was the biggest expansion of wealth ever experienced in human history. That can be repeated. But we, the people <laughs> in our political systems, have to allow it to happen. And generally speaking, and this of course betrays my biases, which are probably shared by you, is allowing it to happen is the role of government, not, not dictating how it happens. There's a lot of nuance in, in subtleties and how you affect that. But the basic psychology is governments need to allow markets to function. If we allow them to function now, we'll unleash wealth creation that's really unprecedented in history. So one of my main takeaways from your book was that the near future isn't created but but by what we invent today, but right. by what we invented earlier uh, in the past decade or so. What are some historical and present day examples of that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, we're always captivated by, we have a word for it now, clickbait. You know, this changes everything. You get, you know, this something that was invented, some discovery, some epiphany. And it might be true. It could change everything at some point in the future. But that's not how the real world works. Though a, a good example would be, let's use the car. They, you know, it was 30 years after the invention of the car before any significant penetration of automobiles in society, 1920s. Now, the car was invented in the 18, late 1880s, 1890. And there were millions of cars in the world in 1900, 1910. Uh, and hundreds of companies making automobiles at that time, by the way. People made a lot of money. They had de minimis impact on society until... 30 years after they were invented. Same was true of the airplane. We can say almost exactly the same trajectory. The same was true of the computer. The first electronic computer was in 1936. Computers of any consequence didn't show up until the 60s, I mean, in, in terms of uh, having impact in businesses. It took another 20 years before they had an impact on our lives into the 80s. Uh, the internet was the same. It took 20 years after the invention of the internet before it began to have impact. This is a common trajectory for technologies of consequence, that the invention takes a while to figure out, the, this is the engineering, how do you make it into a product that's useful? Then it takes a while, usually decades, to make it into a product that can be scaled commercially and is reliable, safe, cheap, whatever, whatever the it is, including whether it was telephony, whether it's pharmaceuticals, 
all, I mean, I map some of this out of my book, but everything follows the same trajectory of, of uh, maturation. So if you want to know what the future is going to be in the near future, the next decade, you'd want to know what was invented about 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but that kind of time frame. But it's just on the cusp of being commercially useful and viable that there, there are businesses and companies that don't have a lot of attention, a lot of sales. They may still be private, but they're not inventing the thing itself, but they're finally building the tools, the products or the services in a way that is commercially viable. That's what I looked at. I went hunting for those things, not, not the, it, the brilliant epiphany. You know, nuclear fission was imagined by Lise Meissner, a, a German physicist, a woman who should have got the Nobel Prize, by the way, fascinating history. Nobel Committee's records were made public about 20 years ago on this. They debated whether they should give her the Nobel Prize and they didn't give it to her because she was a woman. I mean, literally because they, they were worried about the message it would send. And that was a, a it was on the, this was uh, all going on during the decades of the suffragette revolution that took place in the early 20th century. So fascinating. And, and, and these are emotional debates speaking about whether our times are more uh, fraught than their times. I think that was a pretty important debate, a pretty big deal. And the fact that it was so emotional at that time, politically fraught. But anyway, that's the pattern. And, and so you, that pattern is not a new pattern and it hasn't been accelerated. You know, this trope that everything's being accelerated. That's how they felt in 1960. That's how they felt in 1920. That's how they felt in 1890. I mean, this is, this you know, presentism as if we're the only ones that have experienced rapid change. Oh, please. This is, this is historical presentism and myopia. But that doesn't mean the change isn't a big deal and it isn't disruptive and it isn't emotionally taxing. Of course it is. That's the nature of civilization, especially in the last 300, 400 years. So speaking of historical comparisons and rapidly accelerating change, you set the stage in your book by um, comparing the roaring 20s of the last century with our current 20s. You show some similarities with uh, the maturing and converging technologies. What about any cultural or social parallels between the two times? Yeah, they're fascinating how, how, how much they echo each other. And, and that was unexpected on my part. I thought I knew a lot about the 20s till I started reading more about the 1920s. The 1920s and 30s are utterly uh, captivating time of change. And the roaring 20s, you know, the, the Gilded Age, the Flappers, uh, you know, Great Gatsby, all that stuff. This was in a, a time of excess wealth. It sort of feels and smells like art period of, of uh, robber baron wealth that uh, the new tech titans have. Uh, this was on the on the heels of the uh, Bolshevik revolution. People were worried about the, uh, the Russians everywhere. The Red Scare was a really big issue. This was the beginning of the worry of, 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 of the communist takeover all over, all over the world, the domino effect. That was a time when, when the suffrage movement matured into a year, 1920, when for the first time before and since there were two, two uh, amendments to the U.S. Constitution in one year. I mean, talk about politically a, a tsunami. And one was, of course, the right for women to vote. And the other was an idiotic example of how politics could be really stupid. A constitutional amendment to ban the consumption of something humans have been consuming since before recorded history, the ban on alcohol, which was not repealed, right, for 13 years. So, so it's yes, crazy. Ayn Rand said of it at the time, though she wasn't a big drinker, that uh, she would begin to drink on principle. Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, anyway, there, there was also um, uh, the terrorism across the country. Uh, the anarchists were were blowing up buildings. The, the biggest the biggest loss of life on Wall Street until 9/11 was was in 1923, I think. Uh, we had race riots of epic proportions. Charleston was under martial law because of race riots. The U.S. Army Air Force bombed a black community in Oklahoma uh, because of race. I mean, in our bombing people, in, citizens in our country. These are these are uh, astonishingly uh, uh, volatile times. We had uh, more newspapers that, than were cities in the country at that time. There were 27,000 newspapers in America publishing two or three times a day. Uh, what could you possibly write about? The news cycle was like the cable networks today. They made up fake news. The, the word yellow journalism finds its origins in the 1920s because newspapers literally made the stuff up. 
it was it was far worse than today because you couldn't do the fact checking as easily as you can now. There was no Google. There was no. <laughs> you just had to see it printed. Was it print? It might be true. Uh, there were lots of other examples. My point the point is that the, the tumult socially and culturally was very very similar, and the the, the wealth divide and the anger over the the ultra rich compared to the the average person or the poor person was was also at epic proportions at that time. I see we have a uh, a guest in in the background. <laughs> Sorry about Your that. Your dog is joining us. No, it's cute. It's hungry. Um, it's, she's hungry. She's letting me know. She she'll give me an hour and then. Um, she's and very. She's in, she's she's a very intellectually curious dog, and she wants to know she's about French. She's a French dog. The, the future of of technology. Um, all right. Well, listen. I I see a lot of questions here in the chat. I'm going to get to them in a second. Uh, just um, want to touch on what are some of the conventional forecasts about the future of technological change? Uh, you've talked about presentism and how that skews our perspective, but what are what are some of these conventional forecasts get right, and what do they get wrong? And then we're going to get to audience questions. Yeah, that's that's a book in itself. I did an appendix in, a, in my book, as you know, which one of my friends advised I shouldn't have put there, and that's that's a, it. May be my next book is to write just about how to forecast, what do we get wrong, why do we get it wrong. Simplistically, we, over, we overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. Because I'll use a physics term, because of inertia in systems. So big systems don't change fast. Little things can change quickly. It's just like you can push around a super tanker, not easily, you can push around a little skiff easily. Economic systems are the same, human and social systems are the same. I think the biggest error on the non-technology side that the forecasters make is the assumption that human nature will change. So I'm, I'm fond of saying that there are only three rules that matter. The laws of physics, you can't violate them. The laws of economics, you can't violate them for very long. Markets want things to be cheaper. Markets hate rising prices. And that gets you to political revolutions. The third is human nature hasn't changed. The laws of human nature don't change. Why we fight, why we love, why we succeed, why all these things. I'm changed since the time of the, the Greeks and prehistory. And to pretend that those things will change when making a technical technology forecast, uh, which is which a lot of forecasters do. They operate on the assumption that this will change everything. People will behave differently. No, they won't. They never have. And they're not going to. So I mean, that's a, ge a generic statement about a good example of specifically of where that comes into play is the trope that we become a sharing culture that everybody would share their assets, that we would share cars, we would share this, or share houses. No, we won't. Human beings haven't done that since we've known human beings. You have to teach children how to share. It's a hard thing to do. And it doesn't work well in economies. People want to own something. It's sort of wired into us. That's not going to change. To pretend technology is going to change that is profoundly naive. So would Klaus Schwab be one of those conventional forecasters who gets it wrong when he says that you will own nothing and you will be happy by what, 2030 or so? Well, you have two, two, possible, two possibilities for Klaus Schwab. He either gets it wrong and he's profoundly naive about that, or he's right in what he wants, mm -hmm. which is in a totalitarian class state where we tell you how you can live because we're smarter than you are. And we know what the planet needs and what other people needs and who gets what, and therefore you won't own anything. I'll determine what you own. So there's only two possibilities. He either wants that or the former that he's actually ignorant. And I mean that in the, the semantic, not the insulting sense of the term. Yeah, I mean, we get the word <laughs> globalism bandied about a lot today and it can conflate a lot of things. And of course, I think we want to see more international trade. We want sure. to see more international travel, more international yeah. exchange, but what, raises people's hackles is precisely that, that um, decision-making is going to be uh, reserved for global power brokers that have their own vision and, and uh, you know, taken out of the hands of, of local democracies or communities. I know. I think the subsidiarity feature of what people reflexively like, make, which is both in theology and in political philosophy, is sort of anchored in human nature. People like to have control over their lives. That's in human nature. Otherwise, it's totalitarian. 
And there are certain things we agree to cede control on, as you know, but that agreement comes democratically. Otherwise, it's 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 an autocracy or or a totalitarian state. But anyway, so I I don't know which he is. I don't know Klaus Schwab. Never met him. So I'm willing to uh, present both possibilities. He's either ignorant or totalitarian. That's your got you, it. You <laughs> All right. Okay. Questions. Our friend My Modern Galt from Instagram uh, is asking Mark your thought about space travel. It seemed to take a lull for a long time and a journey back to the moon or onto Mars still seems far away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a junkie of space travel. I grew up in the, uh, the dawn of, you know, Mercury, Gemini and Apollo. Um, I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I started out going to university. I mean, you know, all kids at that era wanted to be astronauts. So space travel is hard. And it's one of the ones where the forecasters have overestimated serially and sequentially for uh, a century of how how much and how fast we would do things in space. Low Earth orbit is undergoing a revolution, as the questioner probably knows, with the two massive launches of satellites by by both Bezos and Elon Musk to put a, a global network of tens of thousands of low Earth orbit satellites in for communication, Starlink, the case of Elon Musk, which will bring high-speed internet ubiquitous to the world. It's a big deal, right? It's it's wirelessly wiring the entire planet. This is this is consequential, but it's not space tourism. Uh, space travel has gotten a lot cheaper, courtesy of materials, technology, brave people like Elon Musk again with SpaceX. But I mapped out of my book the uh, the cost trajectory, uh, even if you that is th the cost of a fare to get into space versus the cost of the fare to fly to Tokyo from you know, LA or New York. Uh, those, the cost of the former, the latter, the flying airplanes has been getting serially cheaper, hugely cheaper by an order of magnitude. Space travel has a problem in physics until we discover how to fight gravity with something other than uh, chemical rockets. And there are good ideas on this regard, but they don't exist yet. So. Space, the technological challenge today of going to Mars is roughly co-equal to the technological challenge of going to the moon uh, in 1960. So they're equal scale challenges in terms of engineering we have, which would tell you that we could probably get another few dozen people to the moon and well, we're talking dozens, not, not colonies. And we'll probably get, and I hope we do, uh, get a few people, men and women, probably both these days, uh, to Mars, but that'll only happen if 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 uh, we we take. I think probably it'll be a, a multinational program to do that. It's going to be very very expensive, more expensive than most people realize, and it might be the kind of thing that could knit you know heal some wounds, so to speak, as we try to get through this current period of deglobalization. So anyway, I'm, I'm a bull. I love space travel, but the space travel, the Mars. I hope we do it. It'll be inspirational. We'll learn stuff doing it, but it, you know, it's not going to change the economy of of anything except consume money. <laughs> we have to be rich. Right. To <laughs> uh, from Facebook, our friend Alex Morena is back. Has a question on energy. Asking Mark, did you have any thoughts about the big Texas freeze from a few years ago? Is an independent grid beneficial or something, or should we embrace a national grid? Oh, well, it's e easy answer. National grid, bad idea, real bad idea. Um, first, the country is too big. We're not Germany, we're not Switzerland, we're not England. It's an enormous continent. It's an extraordinarily expensive undertaking and increases the, uh, decreases reliability, increases costs. So uh, lightly integrated or usefully integrated local grids, which is what we have except for Texas, which is a lightly integrated grid. It's much more reliable, uh, much safer, and economically more sensible. The Texas uh, freeze was caused by a combination of two things in simplistic terms, over-reliance on wind and taking their eye off the ball on uh, cold-proofing uh, conventional generation. And that the latter happened because of the former. That is the preoccupation with one consumes time, energy, and focus, and you stop think, paying attention to what you should be paying attention to, 
which is the reliability of conventional assets. If both had not happened, it would never have had a, had a problem. That grid, it's called ERCOT grid, has learned its lesson. Uh, and it's uh, fixing it by adding more combustion turbines for reliability and backing off on, uh, on an over-reliance on wind. Wind's fine. It just, you can't, it's not going to, it has the obvious problem. When you need it, you don't get to call on it unless you're uh, in, in a science fiction or fantasy novel when you can call up the wind. All right. Uh, well, I've never actually heard what happened described so succinctly. And um, as I like to say, the choice to do one thing is also the choice to not do another thing. And so um, sounds like we had a displaced priority and attention that led to that fiasco. Uh, Jack Herschel on Facebook asks, what happened to the tinkerer in the garage? Did he become the programmer? And what does this mean for uh, more mechanically minded inventions? Well, no, that's a really great question because Steve Jobs is, I'm sure the questioner has in his head, famously began with Wozniak in his garage, literally in his garage. Uh, well, the tinker in the garage still exists. There's a lot of them. I have a very good friend who started a laser company literally in his garage. It's an incredible company. It's public now. So, and I have a vested interest in it. So I'm not going to say what it is because it'll look like I'm touting my, my company. You can find out by tracking me down on the magic internets. But uh, the tinker, some things you can't tinker in the garage. And that's always, that's been true for a very, very long time. So it depends on what, you know, what, what it is. And it's not just computing. So you, the question is correct. There's a lot of tinkering you can do in silico instead of in situ these days, especially as computing power gets ever more powerful. You can simulate experiments in computing. Now, uh, we do that, we collectively, the engineering and science community all the time in supercomputers. The average tinkerer can't do that because those computers are too expensive to access. That's changing fast. Within the next decade, within this decade, you'll be able to do the kind of online in tinkering in a supercomputer in the cloud, creating virtual experiments and build things, mechanical things, and render them into prototypes with you know, 3D printers. So that tinkering is, is gonna come roaring back. But when I travel a country and look at and do due diligence, I used to do a lot of this, I do less now. Uh, I, I've run into, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of companies, startup companies mm -hmm. doing things that are mechanical, chemical, uh, you know, physical, the, the, the atoms part, not the bits part of innovation in what amounts to garages, you know, tiny startups with five or 10 people um, trying to make uh, a, a clever idea work. Now scale the clever idea into a product to sell it. You can't do that in your garage any more than Apple could. So I think the principal risk to the tinker in the garage right now is not that there are technologies that can't be innovate, innovated, discovered in, in literally in the garage. And the tools you have available to do that now are much better than they were before. The real risk is how we're structuring our tax and the regulatory system to allow those kinds of innovators to function. That puts them at much more risk than big tech companies taking all the oxygen out of the room. Got it. All right, also on Facebook, George Klein has a more general question asking, what do you say to people who argue that technology is outpacing our humanity. <laughs> Read some history. <laughs> it's, it's, this is a really interesting subject um, because it's anchored in a, a philosophical problem. Uh, so the beginning of my book, I write about technology matters and I write, I point out that others have written this, but I quote them, that to invent is to be human. Uh, so it's uh, homo fabulous, not homo sapien, right? homophobia i mean we we in we you know it's not je pense dans je suis je pense dans 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 we 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 to invent to build machines is to be human it's what it's what distinguishes humans from animals uh, some people think animals may have souls maybe it's true maybe some animals have souls but none of them invent and build machines we share a lot of dna with animals except they can't build machines to invent is to be human so and the point, the point is that the technology is not separate from us. It doesn't impact us because it's an external force. But inventing technologies does affect us. 
it can affect us negatively, not just positively. I mean, this, everybody knows that. Marshall McLuhan, who is famous for the phrase, you know, the medium is the message. The reason he'd said that about television in the 60s is because in his clinical research, he decided that it was demonstrably the case that how we thought and related to each other and, and, and how we thought about forming governments and thought about things like philosophy and theology was impacted by the printing press. The printing press changed how we think because for all of history up to that point, only a trivial percentage of human beings could transfer knowledge any other way other than speaking and listening. Changing how we transferred knowledge changed how people thought and changed society. That technology, the printing press, had a profound change in how we thought and related to the rest of humanity, how we structured our societies, how we did things. So did the computer. So did the television. So, of course, does the cloud. It is a big deal. But does it outpace our capacity to be human? No, it is human to do that. The question really means, and I'm not trying to rephrase the question, but this is what I think people really mean. Does it create more risks than it does benefits? Because it always creates risks. And how do we manage those risks? How do we how do we take the rough edges off the bad things that these technologies create? So the, the invention of the car is the invention of the car accident, right? The invention of the airplane is the invention of the airplane. Would you eliminate the existence of cars? Some people would. There's a few people who feel that way. So you know, Luddites, but most people wouldn't. They just want us to make cars safer. And that would be true. And you actually everything. have some some interesting uh, data um, in the book about where we are in terms of innovations towards self-driving and yeah. even um, flying cars, yeah. uh, vertical takeoff and landing machines. Okay, Lane Stanley Staley on Facebook is asking whether you believe corporatism is going to cause harm to capitalism as a whole, and I'd love to tag on to that um, question, thoughts on the CHIPS Act and some of yeah. the, the current economic um, planning happening uh, out of Washington today. That's an easy one. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Corporatism, in the sense of I think the questioner means, where, where there's a collaboration slash conspiracy between large corporations and governments to affect uh, uh, mutual goals that are not necessarily to the benefit of people broadly, but to citizenry, because corporatism, as opposed to businesses are essential to the functioning of a, of a free society. This is a, the invention of the business is a very old idea in human history. It, they're critical. We need businesses. We need business creation. But corporatism, in a sense, that the corporation is, uh, you know, has a power beyond in marriage with the state, uh, is is where I think the question is, and it's a serious problem. And we see it in our culture and the social issues, in what's being called woke infection of the corporate environment. These, and everyone knows what I say, what it means. It's not, there's not a definition, but when you hear it said unless you love woke, you, you know it's bad. But it's bad not because corporations aren't good, it's because they're, doing not, they're not doing their job. And their job is not to do that. Their job is to be a good citizen in the business of what they do to build or provide a service. So it is a problem and it's a political social problem. Uh, and it's not one that's made better or worse necessarily by technology. Although I think our technologies make it easier to attack the infection of corporatism now than it was before we had access to these communications platforms. So the, these do help us to, so the velocity of information that we talk about, it's the sharing culture that we have online and information is made easier, obviously, by the platform you and I are using right now. And I think that makes it easier, I think, to fight the infection that's, that's already at play. It's an infection. It's like a it's like a social cultural infection of our, our, of our zeitgeist. And I don't think, call me naive, call me the last optimist. I don't think most Americans like it. And I think we're in the process of a revolt over it. All right, well, speaking of this platform, um, on Zoom with us, Raja Parameswaran asks, what is your take on AGI? Are we almost there and what will be its impact? I'm not sure I know what AGI is. Well, we artificial general intelligence. So how is that different than than AI? 
So artificial intelligence, let's just first of all stipulate the term is a bad term. Uh, it was created as a PR stunt by Professor McCarthy at Dartmouth in 1956, I think. I've forgotten the date. I should remember it's in my book to start a conference on computing at the next level. Where was the computing going? What it really is is intelligent automation as opposed mm -hmm. to artificial intelligence because the latter implies we know what intelligence is and we don't. It implies that we know how humans really think and, and we don't. So artificial intelligence is uh, semantically the same as calling a car an artificial horse or an airplane an artificial bird. They occupy the same Venn diagram space by overlapping and a car is far better than the horse at some functions, but it's not better than a horse at all functions and it's not a horse. Computing that operates as artificial intelligence to do a specific narrow task Read, read an x-ray film, identify videos, manipulate a picture, write a sonnet in a Shakespearean-like English, right? That's a narrow specific task. And you can make computers, and we have been making computers, perform tasks like that for a long time. The er eruption of interest over chat GPT was because it was particularly good at some semantic tasks and, and shocked people with its really clever parlor tricks. By the way, engineers have been doing parlor tricks like this since the, the time of Alexandria, Egypt, talking about Alexandria in terms of hero of Alexandria in 50 AD. This is really an old uh, <laughs> habit of entrepreneurs. Artificial general intelligence is the idea that a computer has an ability to operate like a human does. AI that can drive a car uh, can't compose a sonnet, right? Automated systems have specificity. Humans can be trained to do lots of things. Could we eventually get to a computer that would have something we would call something artificial general intelligence, more broadly capable? Yeah, maybe one day. Um, we're probably further from that possibility than you and I casually taking a trip to Mars, technologically. Wow. Okay. Um, well, speaking of AI and uh, some of the applications, uh, I wanted to get your take on the singularity. Is that something you buy into? And if so, thoughts on those using it to uh, make arguments in favor of universal basic income? Yeah, well, the singularity is silly, but a lot of fun in science fiction. And you know, you know what it is, but to define it for those who don't know is that the accelerating uh, progress in computing power uh, is continues at this exponential rate in the very near future it has more intelligence, not equal intelligence, than a human brain. Uh, so in, in the physics of the universe we live in, all things saturate. They stop growing at the rates they grow at in the past. This will be true for computing too. And it's not a bad thing. Uh, we're not anywhere close to tapping out the capacity for computing to do more. Uh, but it, the idea that we're uh, on the verge of a singularity where computers can do everything and replace humans that are more powerful, is genuinely science fiction. It would take, we'd have to take an hour to talk about the interstices of why that's true and why it's silly. But it's, it, it sounds possible given how far computing has gone since 1950. I mean, you know, the, the smartphone that we all carry around is, is literally 10,000 times more powerful than a room-sized computer of, 19, uh, of 1985, 1986. So, and it costs, you know, instead of millions of dollars, it costs $1,000. That kind of progress is, is pretty amazing and shocking, but it's not intelligent and it's not even close to what the wetware does inside of our, inside of our magic craniums that somehow something invented sometime in, uh, in, the, in the midst of theological and philosophical and cosmological history. It's just silly stuff. But uh, the idea of a universal basic income was, was hatched uh, in, during the uh, Kennedy administration, President Kennedy, not this currently running Kennedy in our, in our political time because uh, automation was already taking jobs away from auto workers. So they formed a blue ribbon panel to try to figure out what they would do with all the people who would, uh, would soon be out of work because of automation in the factories. Uh, that's 60 years ago. Last I checked, we have a shortage of labor, not a surplus of labor. Despite the fact we've been automating everything we possibly can for 60 years. So we're gonna automate everything we possibly can for another 60 years and we'll still be short labor 60 years from now. We do not need a universal basic income. We need a universal basic education so people can understand 
what the hell are we talking about? Uh, all right. Well, you know, you've mentioned uh, Kennedy and tangentially uh, the Kennedy that is running this time around, uh, RFK Jr. running for president as Democrat, has yeah. said that he uh, could support nuclear power if it could, yeah. if it can be safe and economically competitive. So question about that. I know this is something you spent a lot of time on early in your career. Um, could nuclear power become more widely accepted here in the United States, uh, even as Europe is moving away from it? Yes, I think we, I think it can be. <clears throat> uh, I think we may be a little bit away, away from universal acceptance or broad acceptance, but I think we're on the cusp of it. I think people uh, want something different than we've had. I think they're beginning to realize what they were told is different and better, principally windmills and solar, solar panels are not the magic that they were told. And in fact, in terms of potential magic, there's nothing as phenomenologically different in the energy world as, as, as nuclear energy and nuclear fission. When you go from combustion technologies with hydrocarbons to wind and solar and batteries, you're increasing your call on materials and land use by a thousand percent. It's a regression. We're trying to reduce our footprint on the planet if you're an environmentalist. When you go from combustion technologies to nuclear, you reduce our footprint on the planet by a thousand percent. Pre-unitive energy and service delivered to society. It is the single most amazing potential energy development in the history of the human race, period. Com comparable to the discovery of fire. But in a similar way, it was a long, long time after the discovery of fire to the steam engine and a long time from the steam engine to the jet turbine. Uh, it's taken a long time to sort out how to make nuclear fission work cheaply and reliably. I think we're on the cusp of it now. There are at least six dozen, not six, six dozen new kinds of reactors and designed at different levels around the world. Uh, small ones, literally refrigerator sized nuclear power plants that NASA is designing for Mars mission in the moon missions to so-called small reactors, which are really big to run you know, small towns and cities that are inherently safe that are, have profound advantages in geopolitical sense, economic sense, environmental footprint. We're on the cusp of it. Uh, I think it'll take time because first the engineering, it still has to be completed. We have to build these things, prove they work. That takes years, not months. It's not like an update to an app. Um, this is in the bits world. Not you, know, you do apps and update in months and weeks. And in the atoms world, you take years, sometimes decades. But we're, we're there, and it's the biggest single change in the energy market since the steam engine. But it will take not as long. Next half century, huge deal. Next half decade, it, it, it really important for uh, innovators and developers. It will have no material impact on how we live our lives. All right. Um, also, Facebook, George Axolopoulos asks, people seem to be very fascinated with flying drones recently, yeah. but yeah. when will we see more robots in our general workplaces? Great question. Well, we are, and he just hasn't seen them because he doesn't work in warehouses, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, for, so a drone can be a robot. It's a flying robot. Uh, robots can also, all of us, when we think robots, we generally think, of the Star, Star Wars or Star Trek kind of robots, they're walking anthropomorphic machines, which is what I think about and what I happen, to, I happen to be most fascinated by, humanoid robots. The reason I'm fascinated by them, by the way, is because it's the first time we'll have designed an automated machine that can operate in the environment that we want to operate in instead of, instead of changing the environment so the machine can operate safely away from us. I mean, th this is a really big deal because to automate something, you have to put it in a cage or put it in a factory away from, you know, it, it's a profoundly different thing to automate a machine that can operate alongside us in the environment we as humans can walk and live in and do our work in. So a, a drone is not like that. It's a, a flying drones are meant to deliver packages. So there are lots of uh, drone deliveries going on around the world already. Uh, hundreds of thousands of deliveries of small packages by drones in Africa, in, in Western Australia. So this is already a business. It's not theoretical. It, has, it hasn't arrived in full bloom here yet for a whole lot of reasons. Some of them are obvious. They have to be quieter. You have to do regulatory changes, this sets of things. But it's already real and making a difference in lives around the world, the flying drone part. The, uh, the robot that can amplify a human, that is, 
when you're advertising to fill a job in a warehouse and the warehouseification of America came because of one click. Buy now caused an explosion of warehouses to deliver the things instead of an explosion of shopping malls that you drive to, right? There aren't enough people to work in the warehouses. So robots have been invading the warehouses now for the last decade. These are wheeled ones, tracked ones, and walking ones. Uh, the walking ones have only just begun to appear in a few, uh, a few uh, business environments. They will. This is an, an invention that's already happened, as, as we talked about at the outset of my book. We don't have to guess that they're going to invent such a thing. You can find them on YouTube. They exist. They are available for sale. They can be bought. They can be operated. Um, there's not a lot of models that you could buy yet, you, the business, but there's lots, there's dozens of companies selling or about to sell four-legged and two-legged robots for work in industrial environments and warehouses, for inspection mainly, and then ultimately for carrying things, doing the dangerous things not only we don't want to do necessarily as humans, but we shouldn't do, and we don't have enough people to do. So we are lucky that the demographic uh, birth dearth uh, around the uh, sophisticated world, wealthy world, is arriving contemporaneously with the uh, development of um, useful robots, finally. So it's not that we'd have to watch for them appearing, as we have to watch them appearing at scale in environments we would see every day, which you don't if you don't work in a you know construction site, but they're already showing up at construction sites. All right, we have nine minutes left. Not sure we're going to be able to get to all of these really terrific questions that are coming in. So apologies uh, to those of you uh, if I don't um, manage to get your question asked. Um, one quick one, Scott Jones, Twitter asking, floating cities, yay or nay? We could do the lightning round, no. Um, those are, by the way, they're called cruise ships and they are cities. So yes, if you're talking about okay. cruise ships, you bet lots more of those. Uh, my Martin Galt, again, do you think technological convenience is making people more complacent and willing to accept top-down control? For some people, yes. For most, no. I think it has the inverse effect for a majority, but they're the silent majority. All right. Digital Comptroller Instagram asks, um, why are zero emissions a myth? <laughs> because of the universe we live in, you emit something somewhere uh, and we can't get rid of hydrocarbons to do the thing that everything requires. Nothing on the planet in society that we build uh, can be done without digging up rocks and refining minerals. And that is done almost entirely with oil burning machines, coal and gas burning infrastructure. And that's not going to change for a half a century to a century. So there's emissions somewhere when you do anything. Okay, you may have already answered this. Uh, Paul Lindhorst on Zoom, is there a future for fusion energy? When do you think? Yeah, it's called the sun and thank God it has fusion energy, but it, yes, there is. When we, when we actually get to true break even, no one's done that yet. And we have no idea when it will happen. And when it will happen, it'll be the equivalent of the arrival of the first, first uh, uh, net energy production for fission and how long that took. So here we are, uh, something uh, approaching the first century of nuclear fission that we still only get about the 4% of the world's energy from nuclear fission. It's taken that long. Fusion will take as long. And we haven't even figured out how to do it yet. Candice Morena, Facebook, thoughts on lab-grown meat? Uh, sure, uh, tastes terrible, last, I, last thing I read. And will we get to there in the far future? I think so. I think there's some very intriguing uh, synthetic genomics coming along. Uh, so this is the invention that's already happened, but like all inventions, as I said at the outset, it falls the 2020 rule. 20 years from invention to commercial potential, 20 years from commercial potential to commercial insertion, and then 20 more years before it's significant. Okay, uh, Lane Staley on Facebook. How do you feel? This is kind of off topic, but I would be curious to get your yeah. view. Uh, how do you feel about the continued and worsening theft uh, from the American people? Not sure if he's talking about shoplifting and crime. I feel bad or about it. Presentism again. We're not. So I, I, you know, it really this is this is part of the social cultural infection I, I talked about, where mm -hmm. we. You know, everybody reflexively feels bad for somebody who doesn't have something, but they also reflexively are offended by people who steal stuff. And so we're trying to uh, resolve the problem always, it's an old problem, 
of e equitable treatment of people who are disadvantaged in any way. It's a, it's a universal re reaction for most people, I mean, other than just you know, sociopaths and psychopaths. And we just gone too far overboard of letting idiot stuff happening, frankly, in, in our culture. It, it, the reaction, the question itself answers itself and it said the fact that it's asked is because we're so offended by this sort of rampant theft of anything from other people. So I'm offended by it. Technology might help solve some of it. Mostly it'll have to be a political, cultural solution. All right, I will let this be the last question and uh, leave you then time for final thoughts. Uh, on Twitter, Alexander Kerensky asks, instead of being the last optimist, what do you say, uh, <laughs> what do you say two people need to do um, so you are the first of many optimists? So I guess he's saying, how do we spread the optimism? Spread optimism? That's a good question. That's why I wrote my book. I could plug my book again. Oh, you can read it's, the book. I'll put the link in there again. You know, it, this is it's cultural too. People, cultural sides go through periods of you know, excitement about our country and our nation, even though that excitement is not a naive and not Pollyannas. There's no problems. It's you're more focused on the positive. So it, it is, it, it, it's not a tech, so education and attitude. It is, that sounds like a sort of a simplistic answer. If we read more and learn more, especially read more about what's really going on in the world, but also what's happening in technology, I suppose what we're being told is happening. We, we would be optimistic with the progress we've made and what we can make yet. You'd, you'd say, you'd have to conclude this, that the, the, uh, the brass ring is really a gold ring. It's really exciting stuff that is possible. Doesn't mean that you're naive. I mean, that, that, that I hope translates into conviction that we have to resolve, solve the problems that we, we have created. We create them politically in our society. So the, the idea of being an optimist is usually considered synonymous with being naive. You're an optimist because you just don't understand how difficult things are for everybody. Well, yes, I do. And that we might have wars still. No kidding. One of the first thing I write in my book is that we'll, we always had wars. We'll always have wars because that could, because of what happens to the evil that's afoot in the world. We'll have to fight wars. But doesn't mean you can't be optimistic about the long run outcome of defeating enemies and, and, and recovering, recovering after wars. It is a, a cultural infection to focus on the downside of things. And it's cultural in the sense at a broad level, but it's, and this is where leadership matters. I mean, I, whether it was Kennedy or Reagan, I'll use a Republican and a Democrat. The attitude they brought as leaders to this country, and I'll use this country because I came here because I like this country. So I'm an American now too. The attitudes that they evinced and the way they dealt with things, they were not naive, neither of those men, but they were inherently optimistic and they presented their views in a reflexively optimistic way. When things demanded them to be serious, they were serious, they weren't silly and Pollyannas, neither were. So we need leaders like that, but that's incumbent then on our political process. So even though I'm a technologist first and foremost, that's my, my DNA is wired with that. I, I would say that it's impossible just like to invent is to be human, to govern or to not want, it, think about how we govern ourselves is also to be human. We're social animals. That's what politics is. It's a social function. So I'm optimistic that we'll sort it out. I'm not naive that we won't, it, that it happens tomorrow, like the next election, but I'm optimistic because it's happened before. The reason the optimism comes in on technology is we know what the future holds because it's already happened. We also know that we can solve these problems because we've solved more serious problems before political problems. So we'll do it again. But it takes, it takes, you know, we have it takes we takes a kind of leader that you hope emerges at the right time for our country. I mean, famously, Churchill was not seen as a great leader before World War II. He rose to the occasion. We doubtless will have such a person in America again because it happened before. It'll happen again. I'm just hopeful, not optimistic, that it'll be sooner rather than later. That's all. Well, that is a wonderfully uh, optimistic and uplifting note on which to end. So um, I want to 
Thank you again, Mark, for spending what is your Wednesday evening with us from Maine. And I wanted to thank everyone who have uh, who joined us today. Terrific questions, everyone. Um, and encourage you once again to please check out his uh, Mark's latest book, The Cloud Revolution. And uh, Follow Mark um, on his website, www.techpundit.com. Any other places we need to stalk you, Mark? <laughs> well, Dr. Google finds me all over the place. It's tech-pundit, by the way. because I don't know who tech-pundit is, but I'm tech-pundit. <laughs> and it, it's, it's sort of a play on words since the punditocracy I always make fun of. But, you know, uh, I'll, since I engage in punditry, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, wear the label. Thanks for having All me, right. I appreciate this. Terrific. Um, and uh, I want to um, thank all of you again who joined us. If you enjoyed this video, if you enjoy uh, the rest of the content we produce at the Atlas Society and our work in engaging young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand, then please consider going over to atlassociety.org and making a tax-deductible donation. I will see all of you next week. It's going to be on a Thursday as we're coming back from the Independence Day break. Uh, and uh, we are going to have Ian Miller, our friend, uh, coming back for a return uh, appearance on the Atlas Society asks to talk about his very latest book, Illusion of Control, COVID-19, and the Collapse of Expertise. We'll see you then. <laughs>